Vibrant Health, a clear-thinking, happier mind in vastly improved athletic performance. The Renaissance Humans podcast is all about pointing out what almost everyone is leaving on the table. We're focused on science-based methods of lifespan extension, disease avoidance, and mental performance improvement. We're about making life better through diet and lifestyle changes. Whether you're struggling with a chronic health condition or just looking to find a little more energy for your day, this is the show for you. This podcast is going to make a lot of you guys really angry. How can I be so sure? Because whenever I brought up this topic in the past, people just freak out. I get so many hate comments, and I just don't think it's a topic that people can think about rationally. And that topic is the subject of spraying chemicals on our food, both synthetic and uh, what we might call natural. So let me ask you a question. Is it healthier for you to eat organic food. Now, if you answer yes to that question, I think a lot of people are going to answer yes. Let me just ask you a follow-up question. How do you know? Does it just seem natural to you? Because for years, I just kind of assumed that organic was healthier. After all, like, you know, the USDA has an organic label, therefore it's gotta be superior, right? And viscerally, it just feels healthier to eat food that uh, uh, an organization has said hasn't been sprayed with synthetic chemicals. I mean, how could chemicals be good? Isn't it natural to not eat chemicals? Isn't it natural? Isn't this how we've always done it? A recent survey of the American public uh, found that about 75% of the U.S. population would prefer to be eating food with no or reduced pesticide content. Uh, 72% believe that food crops are grown with more chemicals today than they were 30 years ago. And 57% say that agriculture has become less safe than 30 years ago. Another survey found that a large part of the American public believes that Eating conventionally sprayed fruits and veggies, what you pick up at your supermarket, is similar in risk to smoking cigarettes, which personally I find staggering. How could they come to believe that? So I would just ask you, are your beliefs on this subject based on facts that can be verified, or are they just that, just beliefs? Common beliefs, granted, but just beliefs that aren't based on fact. Today, our guest is Dr. Steve Savage, a biologist and plant pathologist who is a fan of spraying our food crops with chemicals. Dr. Savage has been working in the agriculture industry for over 35 years. He is a consultant to a number of organizations and a public speaker on the topic of food safety and uh, food myths. His website is Applied Mythology. One of Dr. Savage's main concerns is how do we feed this world with its growing population without destroying the planet? We're going to be talking about many of the common misperceptions around this topic. And at the end of it, you just might feel that, hey, you know, maybe organic isn't all it's cracked up to be. Before we jump into the interview, I just want to remind everyone that the Renaissance Humans podcast, as well as the numerous videos that I put out and articles, 
are free for everyone, but they are not free to make. And uh, if you would like to create more of this, if you'd like me to keep putting my efforts toward this, uh, and you want to support this show, it would be greatly appreciated. RenaissanceHumans.com forward slash support. You can contribute as little as a dollar a month to uh, keep this venture going. So if you enjoy this, give it some thought. Now, without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Savage. Steve, welcome to the Renaissance Humans podcast. Glad to be here. I think it would be interesting to kind of start off by addressing the the big issue here, which is people think that fruits and vegetables as a default are now toxic unless they're organic, that they're being harmed unless they're paying more for this produce. And I have to admit that 10 years ago, maybe even like six, seven years ago, I agreed with that premise by default. And if I ask around among my friends, I would say the majority would say that it's always better for your health to eat organic food by default. That's just the assumption. And I didn't start to change my opinion until I actually started to try to quantify how bad exactly conventional produce and the chemicals on it were for me. And I looked at the published research and found that actually I I couldn't find much hard evidence that it was harming anyone in the quantities found on produce. Now, we can have a separate discussion on what higher doses, such as what farm workers sometimes get exposed to, can do. But in terms of what's on the produce, I just don't see much, very little in the way of damage. And we'll, we'll kind of parse that out a little bit later. But how did we get to this point? How did, how did everyone in the United States just get convinced that conventional produce is really toxic, causes cancer, you know, all these things? Well, I don't think it's too hard to sort of trace back. And if you look at the groups that are out there putting out that message saying, oh, you've got to worry about this, here's the dirty dozen list, whatever, these are all groups that are funded by large, large scale organic companies. And we're not talking organic farmers here or something, you know, we're, we're talking, um, very large organic companies and um they obviously have a vested interest in people believing that they've also done a pretty good job of of maintaining the convenient fiction that organic means no pesticides which is not true and um it's worked they they have managed to scare a lot of people with that in mind are are they basing that on anything realistic? I mean, uh, first off, you just you just kind of gave a, a big one. A lot of people think that if you get a USDA organic approved uh, certified food, that there's no pesticides on that, no fungicides, nothing that's gonna hurt you. Uh, so so what is on there if if there's if there's stuff on there? Well, okay. Um... What's on there is something that you partially can see through that um, pesticide detection program that I'm sure we'll talk about. That's what, you know, the environmental working group misuses. And um, one of the things that is on your organic um, produce is uh, synthetic chemical residues. 
um, they're they're found there, and uh, there there may be various explanations for why. And and they're at, at very low levels. They're they're actually not something to worry about. But that's the same thing that's true about the residues on the others. And I think the burden sort of falls on the organic guys to explain what are those doing there. But then there are several very you know, extensively used um, organic pesticides that don't get picked up in the tests that USDA does because they, they're, they're running it through uh, HPLC column. It, you know, it's good for looking for certain categories of chemicals, but some of the big things used on organic are not detected in that. And one of the big ones there would be copper sulfide, copper sulfate, copper oxychloride, other copper compounds. And uh, those are used at really, really quite high rates, um, and they're not really scary or anything like that, but nobody has any idea what the, the rates are as residual on the produce. The far and away most abundant uh, chemical used in California on crops is sulfur dust, the element sulfur. Um, again, not something very toxic to us for ingestion or whatever. Certainly nothing that's very enjoyable if you're out there working in uh, the vineyard, which I, I did a lot in my graduate school days. I, I certainly didn't enjoy sulfur. But And then the other really big one that's used uh, on organic crops, I think would come as a surprise to most organic consumers. It's um, hydrophinic oil fractions from petroleum and uh, JMS stylet oil would be one of the things. It, it's basically a mineral oil. It's, it's a petroleum distillate and uh, again used very high rates sort of to drown aphids and leaf hoppers and things like that. So it isn't as if organic farmers get a magic pass and don't have to deal with pests. They just have kind of a much more limited set of things that they can use. So uh, you, you just mentioned that, uh, you know, the USDA has a program for testing how much pesticide residue is on our food because determinations yeah. have been made on a, a per chemical basis. Um, acute oral toxicity is usually the scale used to determine what how much of this stuff is gonna is gonna take to actually harm us? And so they test, and they uh, this program normally finds well, there's dramatically less than the amount it would take to harm us on any given piece of supermarket produce. They go and they get this stuff. But what about organic? Are are they just they just get a, a pass from having to do these tests because they're in the organic program? No, um, they. I think what they do with their collection is that it's somewhat random, and so they pick up a certain amount of organic, and that's, again, what USDA does with this, it's a very, very transparent database. And um, so they're, it's, it's very transparent, but it's not exactly convenient, which I think is why very few journalists do their own analysis of it. Um, when you download it, it's a two million table. But within that, you can um, spot which of the uh, which of the of the samples were classified as organic, and it's not a large percent of it. But there have been other tests in the past where well, there was one by the USDA, and then there was also one um, 
by Health Canada, where they did specifically sample organic just to look. And um, in both cases, they found about 40% of the organic had some sort of pesticide residues on it, meaning synthetic pesticides. Now, we generally just assume that if we're buying conventional, it's got some toxic chemical on it. But does some of what's on there not have anything detectable? Well, yes. I mean, um, and detectable is is kind of, you know, one of the issues, too. Chemists are really good at what they do. And so they are frequently able to pick up fractions of, you know, of a part per million, part per billion, even part per trillion that, um, you know, are, are tens to hundreds to thousands of times below what what they said is what's called a tolerance level. And the tolerance level is what the environmental working group ignores. And that's based on not just the oral toxicity, it's the dermal toxicity, it's the chronic, it's, you know, any, there are like 14 different kinds of toxicological testing that go into the thinking behind the risk analysis, which is what EPA comes up with to set the tolerance. And what they do is they, they more or less identify a point at which, you know, we, there, there's nothing else of any type where we can detect a problem, and then they put a 10 or usually a 100-fold safety margin below that and say, well, that's the tolerance. And so, yeah, they, they find things that are way below the tolerance. And I suppose if, if they wanted to make their data less uh, uh, able to be abused by, by an environmental working group, they would just say, well, we won't report it if it's below the tolerance, in which case they'd hardly report anything at all. Um, but they don't. They're very transparent. And so you, you can sit there and look at it and say, yeah, that, that's not much stuff. That isn't enough to, to worry about. It, it's, it's tiny compared to some of the things that the plants make as their own pesticides. I, I think we all know that nicotine is, you know, kind of a toxic material, right? You get measurable amounts of nicotine in all sorts of uh, vegetables, cauliflower, eggplant, tomatoes, things like that. And uh, at higher levels, really, than most of the pesticides that, that you would ever find there. But again, not enough to actually hurt you. Now, you're kind of advancing an opinion that I think people listening to this podcast are probably thinking to themselves, well... I mean, there's got to be something here. Is Are these toxicologists incompetent? Do they just not know? Is the science not advanced enough to detect the harm that it's doing? Or uh, perhaps this is a politicized uh, thing. Um, you know, the USDA has been hamstrung by politicians and they're not really doing a good job anymore. Uh, would, you, would you say that any of that's fair or, or realistic? No, but I, I certainly heard that a lot. Um, and all I could say is my interaction with various agencies, EPA and USDA, I've had less with FDA over the years. Um, no, these are people that, that do their job very seriously. Um, they really pay attention to the science. They, they bring in uh, panels of independent experts. I know 
toxicologist friend of mine who's frequently going off to, to EPA to, to be on panels. What, what's at the core of the explanation Environmental Working Group gives is, well, you just never know, and in the future we might find something else out, and so you know we should just avoid it. But that's sort of like saying that we haven't learned anything in 40 or 50 years. Um, you know, <laughs> that's a pretty, pretty uh, outrageous thing to say. And, you know, scientists will never say, oh, I'm sure we'll never find anything we didn't expect before. But it's been a pretty huge effort over all that time. And I think it's something that society should use for guidance. It's, it's how a whole bunch of sort of bad actor things went away, mostly in that case a long time ago. And what people have been doing is looking for new and better and safer um, options. And I, you know, in the, my 40 years in the industry, I've, I've seen huge changes in the nature of the stuff that's being used. How explain that? Like, how toxic were pesticides, say, 40 years ago for humans versus what's now being used? Have can we say that? you know, uh, risk has actually gone down because of those advances? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a post out there that I, I tracked historically what just cause if I was going to spend all the time to, to do it, I wanted to do it on a crop that I enjoy a lot. So I looked at the, the use of, of things on wine grapes because wine grapes are also, you know, a very high value crop. You, you really work hard to, to try to limit the pest damage on it. And so, um, so there's another really nice, transparent um, public data source. In California, we have mandatory pesticide use reporting. And you can go to the CalPIP website and pull down you know, data going back into the 90s um, by crop, by you know, region, whatever, whatever you want to do. And so what I documented there was that the, the things with most people, when they think a pesticide, they're, they're thinking about something that would be sort of old school, like a parathion, a, a highly toxic organophosphate. Okay. Those were never a very big part of, of what was used, but the use of those you know, has been declining and declining. It's and particularly the more toxic or more persistent ones within that group, and uh, it's a tiny fraction of what it was, say back in the seventies or eighties. And um, the the category that has grown the most um, is what the EPA qualifies is essentially non toxic. Um, that you know, it's it's like no, you you, you almost couldn't kill yourself with this. <laughs> And um, and then the next one is slightly toxic, and so those are things in the same range as uh, table salt or or vanillin in your you know vanilla flavoring in your latte, um, you know not really toxic kind of things. And then there's a small amount that are in the moderately toxic, which is the same range where the caffeine that I happen to be drinking right now falls. Um, yeah, and obviously uh, a lot of us drink a lot of caffeine, but we don't get past the point where it uh, is toxic to us. And uh, you were you were saying something earlier that I think is a really interesting point. Uh, every plant that we're going to be eating pretty much 
has natural pesticides in it. And those are meant to drive off and kill bugs. And the stuff that gets sprayed on crops is used for a similar purpose. But when you actually were to, if you examine uh, an apple, say, or uh, any kind of any kinds of leafy green vegetable, and you were to put it under the microscope and just test to see exactly what's in it, what is the scale of the things meant to kill bugs in a in a, in a piece of produce versus the the things that kill bugs that that were natural versus the things that kill bugs that we put on well i i had that data someplace i i don't have it at my fingertips but what i recall of it was when i was looking at the nicotine numbers um that those were far closer to uh, you know the the safety factor between what you found in the produce and a truly toxic dose of it was a small with any reds that I could find on that crop that year. Yeah. So, so I, I don't yeah. know uh, exactly in terms of any individual crop, but I've seen some numbers where it's like, you know, 98% plus of the chemicals that uh, are toxic in the food are natural and these are not even necessarily something that's going to harm us it really in terms of overall residue it seems like most of it is natural and just a small fraction is the remnant of what is left from being sprayed yeah and then there are of course many foods where um to actually make them safe they have cooked to you know i mean like you you don't really want to eat um, a raw potato. I mean, it, it would take a fair amount of them, but the, the solanine that's in a raw potato is is toxic enough to actually make you sick, but it's inactivated by cooking. And that that's key for actually lots of plants. You know, you, in dry beans, there are things, and cassava, yeah. And, and the reason that plants do that is you think about it, they, they can't exactly run. And so, um, you know, and there's lots of things that would want to eat them since they're the primary source of energy collection for the whole rest of the system. Um, I, one of the things that really struck me early in my career, and I, I, you know, I've not been in agriculture at all, and I'd only now been one year in a graduate program and learning about diseases of grapes, which was a nice entry. Anyway, I had a chance to take my wife back to my favorite place in Colorado. And we're up in this beautiful, high, you know, alpine meadows uh, near the Aspen area. And I'm walking around looking at all the beautiful plants and then noticed something which I had never noticed before. But there was signs of insect eating. There were uh, diseases on some of the plants. You know, th there were pests on the plants in what I consider this sort of little paradise. And it, it just was a fundamental learning to me that, you know, pests are sort of part of the natural order. It's not surprising that they would be there and that they would be competing with us for the things that we're trying to grow as food. So it's, it's really not, can you just ignore pests? It's like, well, what are the best ways to manage those? 
So uh, you've you've kind of touched several times on the environmental working groups Clean 15, and this gets covered in the news all the time, and it's kind of touted as the least polluted food. So if if that list isn't really the least polluted food, what is it? Is there any relevance, and how does it actually get uh, created? Well, I've looked at their methodology, but essentially what it comes down to almost entirely is that they count detections. And uh, sometimes, sort of arbitrarily, they'll say, well, we didn't have enough samples from this year, so we're also going to use them from a different year. But like I, I took this year's rankings and just ran the correlation, just, just plotted the thing between number of detections and their ranking in the environmental working groups thing. And it you know, counted for 80% of the variation. So essentially, that's all they're doing. They're letting just... And so those detections can differ by a thousandfold in terms of what was found, and they can differ by a thousandfold in how toxic the whatever it was that was there that was found, and yet they're counting them all the same. And so when I look through it, I, I don't find very many scary things, but the one place, the one crop in... 14 data where there were, eh, you know, a reasonable number of times where there was something that was above the tolerance. Uh, in fact, as, as much as 16 times above the tolerance, um, it was green beans. But green beans are number 20 on their list because they don't pay any attention to what the chemical is. And again, their excuse is, oh, well, you, know, you just never know. And it's like, well, you, you can say that forever, but um, then the same thing applies to the organic that they're recommending. Uh, you know, if we don't really know anything, then how do we know that those levels are safe? And in fact, the fact that we don't even test for the most commonly used organic things. Um, you know, if, if you want to sort of play that, if it's what you don't know that should drive your thinking process, uh, it doesn't really support their marketing recommendation. Mm. So, uh, you know, the argument that the environmental working group is making is you should, you should, uh, you know, buy organic when you can, and when you can't, you should, uh, you know, clearly go with the least polluted of the the conventional produce, but. Because they, because it'll be healthier for you, and and even though we don't have evidence that it's going to be healthier, well, we'll 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 hope that it will be healthier. Maybe because we don't know what it's doing to us. But you know, it's interesting that U.S. the USDA never says that they're mon they're they're running this program for health reasons or to lower the toxicity of the food to improve health. So what is the organic program for, if not to be healthier? Well, okay. Actually, right on the EPA website, it says that the organic program is not about safety or nutrition. And if you look back at the history of uh, USDA organic, uh, it was right after the Alar scare and, and Congress said USDA there there had been an existing organic industry, but it was very fragmented, and there, there were at least one, sometimes many, certifying groups uh, within each state. And so there were slightly different rules and all of that. And, and Congress said, you know, 
let's let's make a national standard so that people know what this means. And that was, I think, 1990. And uh, national standard didn't fully get hammered out till 2002. And the reason that it took so long was that there was this really mismatch because U.S. is pretty much a science kind of organization. The vast majority of people who work there are scientists. And so they wanted to incorporate some kind of, you know, science basis into the rules. And I have an old friend who was, you know, one of the real pioneers of of organic, commercial organic farming back in the 70s. And he said, you know, <laughs> the, the people for the established organic industry of that time, which was at that point, they were mostly selling into local food co-ops. You know, this was long before the world of Whole Foods and all that. Um, they had a loyal following, and all that following wanted was a definition that was natural. And uh, no interest whatsoever in, in, you know, going beyond that. It was a philosophical principle. It's not a scientific principle. Because just the fact that something's natural does not make it safe or unsafe. But I mean, some of the most toxic things we even know about are natural chemicals, right? So um, that battle went on for a long time and essentially the USDA lost and uh, is sort of stuck there certifying a program which what they're doing is uh, it's like, here's the rules, here's what you can and can't use and uh, we look at your paperwork and we do one inspection a year and that that's it. Yeah. And so it, it never was designed in a way to be either the safest or the most environmentally friendly way to farm. In fact, sometimes the rules prevent you from doing what would have been the most environmentally sensitive way to farm. Um, let's let's get into that then, because uh, I think that while a lot of people are concerned about their health and think that conventional produce is going to hurt them, uh, I think there's also a large environmental aspect to this. And personally, it really was kind of a mind bender when I started to think about it, because personally, um, you know, I eat a plant based diet and I think, well, you know, you you eat less meat, dairy and eggs, and that's going to reduce the environmental impact of the foods you're eating. But it's interesting that you might actually be doing some harm to the environment by choosing organic through kind of indirect means. Uh, could you could you kind of walk me through the thinking on that? Uh, yeah. There there are a few. I mean, again, the, I think the original intentions of the organic movement were great, and the original insight that they had, this would be going back into the early 20th century of saying, you know, we've got to pay attention to the health of the soil. That, that was, that was a big deal. You know, when, when people say, oh, well, all farming was organic up to a certain time point, it was like, no, actually it wasn't. Particularly once we were into plow-based farming, it, it was kind of a mining operation, you know, leading to lots of soil degradation and erosion and all that kind of stuff. And so that was a fundamental insight, but um, then the, but there are limitations that come up. So one of the ways that the organic 
folks have been able to improve soil quality over time essentially requires importing very large amounts of organic matter, usually in the form of manures or composts or things like that, and putting it into the soil. So any sort of tillage process in a soil is going to deplete the soil carbon and you know degrade the sort of three-dimensional quality and everything like that. So adding back massive amounts of it is, is one solution. Well, the problem with that is that... Um, First of all, we're, we're talking some pretty major uh, fuel just for hauling this around. But when you compost things uh, and, uh, you know, even even doing a really good compost, which is intended to be an aerobic compost, when people actually look at what comes off of a compost pile, even the best managed ones emit a fair amount of methane and nitrous oxide, which are really potent greenhouse gases. And so you do the math and actually uh, to the extent that if you're using your compost as your fertilizer, which is would be a common thing, I, I calculate you have 12 to 14 times the carbon footprint of a synthetic uh, nitrogen fertilizer. Okay, that's, that's not something people think about. Um, what one thing we've learned starting since the 1960s is it's way better to farm if you don't till the ground or till it as little as, as absolutely possible. And it's called no-till farming, strip till, you know, all sorts of things like that. And then also if you try not to have any time of year, you know, other than when it's got snow on the ground where where you don't have plants growing, so the use of cover crops. Well, now lots of organic farmers use cover crops, so, so that's a good overlap. But for the organic farmer to do the no-till is extremely difficult. And so on millions of acres of uh, row crop land, at least, um, the sort of environmentally best thing to do is sort of this no-till with cover cropping kind of thing. And... Um, that's that's really hard to do organic and well the main reason is that they don't have very good alternatives for weeds they're they're pretty much stuck with mechanical means to to control weeds and so by definition you're you're going to be you know pulling things up there's a device they have called a roller crimper or something like that but it's 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 not the kind of thing that you're going to be able to to do on on any real scale of farm size and even within uh you know say tree and vine crops um especially california where our water is short it's a really good idea that during the growing season itself that there isn't something growing right there in the same row with the trees or vines um, that on, on what they call the, um, the, the in the vine row or in the tree row. What most good growers do today is they maintain a, a mode sort of um, cover crop in the middles, the, the part where you drive up and down with the tractor. So you're stabilizing the soil there and uh, whatnot. And you, usually it's something hardy that you don't have to water in the summer and that kind of thing. So that the water can be just for the trees and vines. Well, that's really pretty easy to do with herbicides. But for organic, um, 
you might end up having to do a lot of hand weeding there. Or the other alternative, and this, this is in the official recommendation books, is that you drive down the rows and blast the weeds with, with a propane torch, which in a dry place like California doesn't necessarily seem like the best idea, but, but they, they report you know use of like multiple gallons of propane per acre for, for this weed control. So, so it sounds like soil degradation is definitely going to be uh, worse in a lot of organic setups and carbon emissions will be higher as well. But um, I guess the real kicker for me is just the, you know, how many calories can you produce or how many pounds of food can you produce per acre for conventional versus organic? Because at the end of the day, anytime you are getting less yield from any given body of land, you're basically saying, well, now I have to go in open up a formerly wild forested area and turn it into a, a farm, which is ultimately going to worsen our environmental situation. Am, am I pretty correct with that? Well, yeah. I mean, on on a large scale, there's there's an issue which called land sparing. And, and the idea is if you can be more productive on your existing land, you are sparing the need to convert more land. Now, most of that's going to be driven by, you know, the big um, commodity row, row crop kinds of things. Um, when you're in now, the, the productivity of, of organic is fairly dramatically lower. And once again, there's there's some great uh, public data on that. And I've posted an analysis there uh, every few years, the U.S does a huge survey of, of organic growers and what were their acres and what were their yields and all of that. And USDA also does that kind of survey on, you know, sort of a lower percent level, but uh, of all kinds of farmers every year. And uh, they don't do it, but I took the two data sets and compared them. And um, for the most part, not in every case, but for the most part, the yields of, of the organic are, are pretty dramatically lower. And th this is this is real world commercial stuff, right? And, and what kind of a, a difference in, in production are we seeing? Like what kind of a percent? Well, many things where it's say 60 to 80% is productive and several things down in the 30 to 50% is productive area. And, um, you know, there are various reasons for that. Um, it, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to do some of these things. It's, tends to be issues with weeds. It tends to be issues with actually being able to get the levels of nutrients to the plants when they need them the most. The thing about lots of organic fertilizers is they're sort of slow release, which is nice for certain circumstances, but there are times when they're not releasing fast enough for what the plant could use. And the sort of state-of-the-art right way to do that is is to put in um, water-soluble nutrients through the drip irrigation system and try to match it exactly to what the plant wants to take up so that you're not putting excess there that could end up in the ground or surface water, but you're not limiting the plant. Uh, again, that's very difficult to do with the available organic fertilizer options. There have been two kind of rather dramatic uh, Fraud cases that have happened in California where somebody was selling a uh, water-soluble organic fertilizer, which turned out it was spiked with, you know, synthetic or whatever. 
it's kind of silly because the plant doesn't care. The plant picks it up nitrate ion as an ammonia ion, maybe as your real molecule. It doesn't know where it came from. It's no different once it gets inside the plant. The other kind of issue with production is the fact that our human population and the need for food isn't staying static. I think we're projected by 2050 to hit about 10 billion people if we stay on track for that. Um, I mean, do you feel confident that we can feed that number of people in in any case? And if if more and more is coming from the organic side with our current yields, do you think that's viable? No, no. I, To me, organic could not possibly go beyond the niche that it is um, if you're going to, you know, meet world food supply. And, and if you think about it, most of what organic is for is for rich world anyway. And, uh, you know, people who can afford to be, you know, picky about things. Um, but if, and, and the, the rising food demand, part of it is also that you have growing middle classes throughout a lot of the world. And those people are looking for a higher quality diet than they've had in the past. And I think one of the things that they would, I'm sure, very much like to do is have more access to fruits and vegetables. And uh, so I, I think, especially for those populations, it, it wouldn't make any sense to be saying, well, now you need to grow those organic or something like that. That What you really need to do is try to get certain countries uh, around the world in line with modern regulations. Um, my daughter-in-law is Chinese and then uh, my son and she and our two grandkids are going to China uh, in the summers. And honestly, I, that scares me because in China, they still use some of the old nasty things that we haven't used for years. And they also have high levels of heavy metal contamination of their agricultural soils. And, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, in terms of feeding the world, there's there's a lot to be done that would be just to bring them into the 21st century in terms of regulation. So if you were to head to China and knowing what you know about what they put on their produce, would you select organic if it was available there? Um, no, I don't think so. I, because also what I know about the system there, I, I wouldn't trust it, but the, uh, it's pretty much an honor system and, uh, and I'm, I'm not alone in this. I mean, you, you can look on Cornucopia or Organic Consumers Association or whatever. They, they have severe doubts about things that are called organic from, from China or India and, and, and there are reasons to, to worry about. It. So for instance, um, because there's a lot more demand for uh, feed for organic um, milk and meat production, uh, in Canada, they were importing a great deal of, of organic corn from uh, India. And it's not like Canada can't grow corn, but, you know, the, you know the, but to, to get organic corn at a price point that was of interest to those people, they, they were importing it from India. 
Well, Health Canada started checking randomly, and then they decided eventually that they're going to have to test every single shipment because they keep finding high levels of aflatoxin. This is a really, really nasty material made by a fungus that infects it. It's something we do a pretty good job of keeping that kind of stuff out of our food supply here. But when you start, you know, that, to me, the, the real uh, sort of potential disaster that organic has coming up is just there's this tendency by some food companies, probably more on the processing side, um, to you know, go cheap places to source things. And uh, you, you could get into supplies you, you really don't want to get into. So um, I know that there's people out there when we were kind of having that environmental cost discussion who hearing what you said, which we're going like, yeah, but yeah, but and one of the yeah, buts that I think they're probably thing is like, think about the specific instances in which we know that, um, pesticides are harming us and I'm thinking you know the probably the biggest one because it makes headlines all the time is the giant uh gulf dead zone uh would would uh switching to all organic production if that was even theoretically possible fix that no well because the the dead zone and most dead zones um you know there are at various river mounts uh in various places that isn't driven so much by any pesticide things. It's it's a process called eutrophication that is it's mostly about nutrients, about um, nitrogen and phosphorus, and that leads to uh, an algal bloom, and then those organisms use up all the oxygen, so you kind of get this dead zone where other things can't live. So it's really much more a fertilizer issue. Okay. And um, honestly, organic would be no solution to that because uh, if you put out your organic manure or, or compost, um, it is going to continue mineralizing, which means releasing those, those actual nutrients, the nitrate in particular, that's the one that moves mostly in water. And um, whereas it may not be giving the plant enough during the peak spring growing period, it might be continuing to just liberate more and more and more all through the fall when the plant isn't even taking any up. So um, the, the solution to those sorts of issues really tends to be uh, being able to be more precise with the timing of, of your fertilizer applications. And then probably one of the biggest issues, and this would be the same whether it was organic or not organic, a lot of the fields in our really productive areas in the Midwest uh, have what are called tile drains because it's a way that if you do have way too much rain early in the season, it's a way to get the field drained a little bit. Well, those end up being a really good conduit for taking um, those fertilizers down into the stream, right? And so a, a real solution needs to work on, all right, how do you, how do you sort of trap at the end of those? And, and in, in a way, who's going to pay for that? Or, or how are we going to get this done? What's an efficient way 
to to take care of that problem and to to take care of the nutrients that are washing off of people's lawns and going down the street as well. But no, but the Gulf Zone is is really not a pesticide issue. It, it's a fertilizer issue. I know also that as we've been having these discussions, there are people out there who are saying, well, yeah, but these are problems with, you know, huge agricultural industry farms with huge monocrops. And the solution is, well, if we only brought everything local and had small family farms that know how to manage the land or – Hey, you know what? Permaculture is the answer. Permaculture, instead of importing produce, they're all about generating, um, uh, you know, fixing nitrogen from leguminous plants and perennial crops. Uh, you know, and that'll be our solution. Do any of those sound at all realistic to you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. And, and here's why, because, um, to go to the kind of systems people are talking about there, we'd probably have to go back to, say, 60-70% of the population working in agriculture. Um, one, one of the things I say in my talks is, I, I say, do you, do you feel out of touch with you know modern farming? And I say, well, you should blame Jethro Tull. And I'm amazed how many people still have heard of Jethro Tull. But not really talking about Jethro Tull, the rock man, but talking about uh, an agronomist in the early 1800s who developed the seed drill and the whole idea of let's plant these crops in rows so that then we can control the weeds with uh, a horse and a plow instead of by hand. And that was the beginning of the mostly mechanization change that allowed us to go from more than 90% of the population doing the farming to less than 2%. And, um, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know what percent would actually be willing to get back in there and do it. Um, you know, there are people who will do that as a, as a lifestyle choice or something like that. But I don't really think your average person wants to, to uh, actually have to work that hard to do it. And there, there are other ways to be super efficient, at least on certain things. So um, it really only works for certain kinds of crops where the investment profile pays off. But one thing that can be amazingly productive is, is greenhouse production. And you see this for tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers in particular. And um, the amount per unit of land, per unit of water, per unit of fertilizer is, is just like mind-blowing. And in that case, this is the one case where you can actually usually end up with not even any need to, to use pesticides because you exclude the pests as much as you can. It's, it's hard. They, they, they will try to find their ways in there, but it, it is a possible thing to do. And um, so, yeah, in terms of the diversity in your diet, this, is, this isn't ever going to be what, you know, basically gets you the calories to stay alive, but it certainly can give you lots of delicious uh, vegetables, at least. And we'll see. It may evolve into... Uh, it's kind of headed more into melons. I assume someday, eventually, it'll probably go to strawberries. I don't know. 
Uh, okay, so I think we should kind of swing back around to the health topic again. Okay. Um, and uh, the reason I want to do that is because uh, kind of we were having this discussion before. Um, you know, I, I was, I pretty much told you that, you know, I just wasn't seeing tons of convincing, really great evidence that, it, that, um, a lot of these pesticides are harming us. Um, that being said, I did send you, uh, like maybe like six papers where we're talking about, you know, not a conclusive link, but maybe one odd study found a link here and one odd study found a link there. And you, you know, gave the caveat that I'm not a toxicologist, so I'm not right. the best person to be giving exact answers here. But I was hoping maybe we could kind of run through this. And, and I, I just like to throw out an example. So you had mentioned that when you were younger, you were spending a lot of time working on farms and vineyards, and you were exposed to some of these things. And to be honest with you, if you said, Andrew, you have to go down to the Salinas Valley in California and spend X amount of hours every week working in a field, I would not do it because I've seen the studies looking at, uh, you know, these farm workers and they do have higher rates of cancer. They do have issues. Um, and so would you be willing to go down there uh, and, and work? And like, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like it's a safe thing to do? Well, I've I've been in a lot of those fields. I've not had to be the guy out with the hoe, um, but um, no, I, I think I mean when when you get to the whole farm worker side, um, a lot of that comes down to whether or not you know all the established safety rules are are being followed, and uh, the farmers and growers that I'm aware of do that. I, you know, I, uh, I'm sure maybe there's somebody who, who doesn't, but I think that would be pretty rare because there are a lot of things written into the label. The, 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 every pesticide has to have a, an EPA label and it puts restrictions on. And so one of the major ones has to do with what's called personal protective equipment. And so, um, or a re-entry interval. So like, you know, nobody should be going into a certain field until, you know, X number of days after this chemical was applied. Um, or if, or if somebody's handling this and, you know, running the sprayer or whatever, they need this kind of protective equipment. And that, you know, I mean, it makes sense. It's kind of like the difference between hazard and risk. So electricity is, an extremely hazardous thing, right? But we all kind of need it. And we minimize the risk by trying to not get ourselves directly exposed to the electricity. It's the same principle there. Um, and then again, a lot of the, a lot of the things people would be using would actually be really low hazard on top of it. A lot of the more modern things. So I don't know. I, 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 I am sure that in the past there, there probably were more issues. I'm certainly going back, you know, several decades ago, but, um, it's, it's not something that would have to be unsafe. I think it would really help a lot if we had a rational, um, guest worker policy, like most of the civilized world so that we could have 
a very well-trained and able to go back and forth as they wanted to sort of population, stable population of people who really, you know, knew their safety right. And, you know, <laughs> I, I think one of the complicating factors, um, even for, for education in this area is, uh, I was involved in something where we were, we were wanting to set up some, you know, sort of safety education things for, uh, workers in apple orchards. And, uh, it was like, well, you know, you, you just can't set that up in a public place because these people aren't willing to show up there. It's too dangerous for them. Outside of the actual workers, though, I, I personally kind of read some of these studies and I have to balk because, for instance, there's a one I'm looking at. I think I sent it to you prenatal exposure to our organophosphate pesticide in IQ in seven year old children. Basically, these were not even necessarily pregnant women who were working on the farm, but rather the uh, the mothers uh, or the the wives of the workers in many cases and uh, looking at their children and uh, they appear to be, you know, they appear to be have to have lower IQ basically due to not even direct exposure on the farm, but rather it's in their environment in the general area. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, okay. First of all, remember the OP usage is way down. And so that's, you know, very much a declining issue. And one of the one of the things that was going to be part of that safety program uh, that we were talking about, it had to do with an OP that called ASIN FOSS method, methyl that, that is, is completely gone now. But one of the things that you know, was identified as probably the, the most useful change that people could use is to have a different set of clothes to wear home. In other words, don't don't get into your car, which is going to be your family car, with the clothes that, that you use that day in the field. You know, just the kind of really common sense things like that. But um, with, with a, a population that, that is, you know, not always entirely best served by our system, um, you know, that, that took some doing to try to communicate. So you think um, that the issue is really not that we can't come up with a safe way for these agricultural workers to produce the food that we're eating, uh, but rather because the system is set up really not to facilitate their legal stay and basically uh, you know, makes it really hard for them to work here and they're const constantly having politicians rail against them and, and <laughs> other, generally people rail against them that it's just, you know, we're not setting the safeguards to protect these people that they really need. And, and so we're, we're asking them to work in an environment that's really productive for us and works pretty well, but which is ultimately toxic and, and they're just not being provided with the safeguards and, and educated in a way that will safeguard them. Um, I wouldn't say that on the whole, they're not being safeguarded. I would say on, on the whole that they are, it's just, you could probably just up the ante on that whole system. If, if this could all be a completely out in the open discussion and, uh, you know, it, yeah, it, you, you could set up sort of safety certification processes and it's like okay if you really want to be 
a farm worker here, uh, you know, get yourself this certificate. And, and then, you know, they would be very well armed then if, if they were ever being asked to do something without the appropriate equipment, they could say, hey, you know, I can't do that. I, you know, but, but if you've got somebody in sort of a precarious immigration status, they may or not be willing to push it that way. And again, I, I, the, the, the growers I interact with, I can't ever imagine asking somebody to do something uh, that way. But there are times when somebody might not want to. You know, sometimes the Tyvek suit is pretty hot on a hot day. <laughs> you know? um, but, you know, the, the trend is more and more towards, uh, you know, it, it, the modern tractor has a completely air handled, you know, enclosed cab, uh, you know, so that, you know, it's, it's perfectly comfortable. I, I think I would almost worry more about um, the farm worker who has to go into the organic field and spend the entire day bending over with a short-handled hoe, which the organic industry petitioned to maintain, um, even though uh, California was trying to get rid of it. I, I don't know if you have an opinion on this, uh, and I just kind of want to put it out there as an aside to uh, – uh, or, or not even an aside uh, – to, to the listeners out there. So you know, when I'm hearing this, I think you know, this is a tricky subject. It's a, it's a fine line to walk, and um, you know, I, I look at some of the research out there, and again, I'm not a toxicologist either – but, uh, you know, there are studies out there that show that, for instance, going on an organic diet for a week or two, and, and I, I uh, sent Steve these studies, uh, you know, can lower your organophosphorus pesticide residue in your body by significantly, almost down to zero, and that, that, that the amount of that in your body um, – is uh, linked to, is believed. I don't want to use the word linked. I think that's too strong. There, there may be a correlation between issues like that and Parkinson's. It's something being continuously investigated. So I want to just say, like, you know what? This is a tricky, complex subject, and I don't think it can be glossed over. I think that science is continuing to advance and do a good job, but right now, I don't see a definitive reason safety wise why for someone consuming the produce at the the grocery store and that we're in danger i think there's always a possibility i think that science is looking into this stuff scientists are doing good work um but yeah always a lot of tricky tricky things to investigate here well but there's also a lot of work going on showing um positive health benefits of eating lots of fruits and vegetables which you know i'm, I'm pretty sure you would agree with. And um, so I think the great tragedy is if you've got people who actually, you know, based on all this stuff that, uh, you know, environmental work group or whatever is out there promoting, if that's got people eating less produce than they would, and it's hard to track whether that happens, but um you just look statistically, we Americans still don't eat the levels of uh, fruits and vegetables that every, you know, reputable health person would tell you you ought to. And I think the fear of, of the pesticides uh, is is one of the drivers for that. Or the sense that, oh, gee, if I, if I have to buy it organic and I'm on a limited budget, you know, if we really had a two-tiered food system where 
basically you had to be a little bit richer in order to have safe food, that would be a wholesale failure of our entire system. And fortunately, I don't think that's the case. I, I agree. I mean, from what I've seen of, of published literature, it just doesn't look like that's the case. Um, but I, I do agree with your saying because, um, you know, there was a study uh, or a survey rather of just the general population and a significant part of the population, it was a majority, I don't recall the exact percentage, said that eating conventional produce is similar to smoking cigarettes, which from a statistical standpoint isn't even close. There's no way you could make that argument. But it's it's <laughs> definitely what's out there. And I, I think even, even the environmental working group, as much as I have qualms about what they do, uh, you know, even they admit that it's better to eat conventional produce than to not eat conventional produce. <laughs> Yeah, they kind of bury that in the... Uh, in the <laughs> yeah, thing. you have to look a little bit to find it. Yeah. You know, what's ironic, uh, uh, that, that the grandkids uh, that go to China sometimes actually currently live in, in London. And uh, so we go and visit when we can. Um, and uh, in the London grocery stores, they, you know, really high prevalence of bio, their sort of organic version, right? But every week I'm in London, I feel like I get a year's worth of secondhand cigarette smoke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't really understand the disjoint here. It's like, okay, we have a really well-documented risk and we have this sort of murky thing. And why are you ignoring the really documented risk? Yeah. Um, and, and actually, just for the record, uh, so – People that are listening to this podcast, they're healthy people. They're trying to improve their health. They're maybe working on overcoming health conditions, and they're so they're eating more produce. Maybe they're eating yeah. triple or quadruple the amount of produce. Maybe even more. Maybe they're eating all raw diets. Um, but whatever they're eating, is there ever a point at which it's a bad idea to eat more produce? Would you say? I would say no, particularly for. You know, the produce that comes through our, um, you know, our system and, and, and even most of our imports. When you look at PDP data, there's, there's usually a few more kind of outliers, things that have, you know, pesticide that maybe isn't officially supposed to be on that crop, but, you know, not at a scary level or whatever. There's a little bit more of that with imported. But a lot of the importation is, uh, at least in partnerships with somebody here already. So, you know, for the most part, that's good. The, the things that, that I would worry about, like I say, if, if they come from parts of the world that don't have a well-established regulatory system, environmental regulation systems, or don't have a well-established way to be looking for dangerous things. Like I was just talking to somebody who is involved in a US AID project in um, Azerbaijan. And uh, they're growing nuts. And I said, oh, uh, are you checking those nuts for aflatoxin? And he says, well, that's a real problem. There isn't a reliable lab anywhere in Azerbaijan. And that's really one of the things we have to set up. And it's like, okay, um, I kind of stay with my old thing, which is I don't want, I, I'm going to eat nuts from California because I know the system they go through. 
So would you say that when people are at the supermarket, they should be concerned about buying that those grapes from Chile or, you know, from wherever else? You know, uh, Chile is, is a great example because, again, I think there are some really good growers down there and then they're, they're well connected. To, for somebody to be a supplier to the produce industry, they kind of have to be able to tell their customer if it's any kind of a mainstream store or even a Whole Foods. It, they kind of have to be a year-round supplier and so they're going to be getting it from different places, different times of the year. And um, I, I, I really feel like the, the folks in Chile do a, a great job. I, I was really enjoying some of the Chilean grapes this winter, and then they, they, they were bringing out a few varieties. Uh, I, I particularly like what are called muscat grape varieties. You ever had those? Yeah. And people either love or hate the muscat flavor, but I love it. And um, I'd really love to see, uh, you know, some more differentiation within the table grape thing. It's like, you know, consumers have learned what are their favorite varieties of apples, right? When I was a kid, there were three kinds of apples <laughs> available in the stores. And, you know, look at what's available now. And I'd love to see the same thing happen in, in table grapes, at, at least, and many other things as well. And so some of that, particularly if it's something that's coming, say, from South America, and it's something that can come by ocean transport, the things that are having to come on an airplane, yeah, that's, you know. Don't feel so great about the carbon footprint there. Ocean transport is astoundingly efficient. Yeah, I was looking at um, a lot of people are concerned about imported fruit like bananas, but actually bananas really are not bad in terms of carbon footprint. I was doing a video on that a little while mm -hmm. ago. Okay, um, so we've been talking for over an hour now, and I just want to, because we've been, we, we have, we've barely, we really didn't even get to talk about you at all, and I'm glad we got <laughs> to cover all these issues, but to kind of wrap up, uh, I was hoping you could kind of just touch on a few points, and one is, how did you get into this? I know that you, you know, grew up working in your grandfather's organic garden, and, and did that have an impact on you at all? And also, exactly what do you do, and why are you so passionate about educating people about why conventional is really pretty good, and why our food system is really pretty safe um, in the face of, of all this misinformation? Well, I, I do think that Grandpa's Garden had some influence on me just because, you know, I, I, I'm a suburban kid. It, there wasn't anybody in any part of our known family history that had been farmers. So, you know, and lived in Denver. So it's not like I even saw farms. Um, but then when I was uh, an undergraduate, I was, I was doing biology at Stanford. And uh, I think partially because I was trying to find classes where I could avoid the pre-meds. But um, I just got interested in the plant biology classes that were there. And then it turned out that there is a, a Carnegie Institute Plant Research Science Center. And so I was able to take a, a bunch of really cool, um, you know, very specialized plant classes. And so in the process of all of that, I heard about this um, field called plant pathology, basically a study of the diseases of plants. And it just sounded interesting to me. And looking back, you know, I had, I had no wait, you know, I had no idea to know whether I'd like it, but it just sounded really cool. It was this interaction of all these different biological systems. 
And so I went to graduate school in that and found out that, yes, indeed, I, I really do love that. So then over the years, I, you know, worked on all sorts of things. I mean, it started in, in wine grapes. Uh, it was my first crop that I was exposed to. And then I was in orchards in western Colorado. Then I, I went to work for DuPont for seven years, and we were doing discovery. We were looking for new and better and safer chemicals. So that's when I really got aware of, you know, the investment that goes into that and actually the challenge that goes into that. I think in the whole seven years I worked there, I think we may have found one to, to become a new commercial product. Um, but then this little company called me from San Diego and uh, – you know, San Diego, Delaware, San Diego, Delaware, it wasn't too hard. So um, came out and, and it worked on biological controls. So I got to kind of see that whole other side of things. And that's really cool. It's really fun as a biologist. It's part of the solution. And I continue to work in it fairly frequently. But it's not the whole story by any means. And uh, then also the whole time in my career, I've been tracking what's been going on in um, biotech. And to me, that's a very big part of, of this solution. So I don't know, I just, I'm just seeing all this, I'm seeing the, the evolution since the late 70s of the industry and all the good things that are happening. And then in 2009, I'm just getting more and more frustrated looking online and seeing disinformation about, you know, things I know about, you know, it's like, wait, wait a minute. I know how that works, that this is wrong. This is false, you know, and I didn't know what to do. So I started blogging and, uh, got on a blog called Sustainablog at the time. And, um, that, you know, has, has developed over time. It's sort of been my outlet and I'm, I'm up to 350 or something posts since then. Um, and, then about a year ago, um, Forbes said, do you want to be a contributor? Which means I give them free content, but, um, you know, it's a new audience. And, and also over the years, I've been getting more and more speaking, uh, invitations. And I really enjoy that particularly when I can, I mean, I, I love to talk to agricultural, uh, audiences, but, uh, to other groups, like I, I very frequently speak to groups of nutritionists and registered dietitians, just talk to uh, environmental um, inspector association out of New Jersey. You know, there's just a lot of people who would like to know more about, you know, what's really going on in agriculture. And again, it's, it's such a small part of society that, uh, you know, it, 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 it has to work pretty hard to get its message out. There's a lot of really great farmer bloggers and things like that. Um, but I guess the sort of the niche that I feel is Phil is more on the, on the, you know, kind of mixed technology side of things, whether it's fertilizers or pesticides or biotech or, you know, other things. So looking forward is there anything that makes you think, hey, you know, we're really figuring this out and, you know, we've got something on the horizon that's going to make food produce safer? Or is there anything on the horizon that makes you think, you know, we're about to step things up a notch, kind of like a, what's good going forward here? Like this solution is kind of coming about. Well, there, uh, there's, there's no, I don't think there will ever be a single magic bullet for that. 
but um, I just see all the time, um, you know, new and interesting things that pop up that uh, look really promising. Uh, there, there's a group called Sensory Gen that has found um, ways to come up with insect repellents that, uh, including things that are grass food ingredients, you know, but they've been able to identify that these could actually serve as pretty darn good insect repellents. That would be a real interesting approach, uh, you know, to particularly for certain kinds of pests to, to just have them stay away. Um, there's a technology developed at Oxford University that's sort of a variation on an old method that we've used for some insect control used to be they would call sterile male release where they'd raise a whole bunch of say mosquitoes and uh, use radiation to to make the males sterile so that when they go out and breed it's unsuccessful well they've got uh, a, a genetic engineered version of that which basically just means that when the males go out instead of being compromised by being irradiated they just pass along a gene that makes it impossible for the offspring to to grow. And uh, it's probably going to be deployed. Uh, there, there's test runs deploying this for Zika control, which is a pretty high priority, but there are certain, you know, key insect pests that it would be really nice, really nice part of the mix to be doing something like that. Um, and there's yeah, there there are a few other things. There there's a there's a thing called RNAi, which looks to have the potential to make things sort of an insecticide or fungicide that is even more specific than anything we had today. Like it could be, it could be something that would only affect the Asian citrus psyllid, you know, which is the thing that's going to spread the Hualong disease and and kill off all the citrus in California. Well. Wouldn't that be awesome if, if you had something that you could be putting out there that only went after one insect that you really don't want? So yeah. th those kinds of things, that it's, there's always lots of new things in the pipeline. Okay, great. So uh, I think we have been talking for uh, an hour and 15 minutes, so I don't want to take up any more of your time. But um, Steve, thank you very much for joining us and, and helping to educate my audience about this topic, because I, I think it's really important. And you did a great job laying it out. Well, thank you, Rich. Enjoyed the conversation. Okay, guys, thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Savage. And uh, just a reminder that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you want to see more of this type of work uh, to improve your life, to help you uh, make better decisions, uh, then please consider supporting this podcast and the other work I do in video and text format. You can do that at renaissancehumans.com forward slash support. That's renaissancehumans.com forward slash support. See you next time.